Would you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew's Gospel chapter 24. Uh, We'll continue in the series on the parables of Jesus this morning. I think it's most appropriate that as we come down to the last of these parables, I think there's one more and then we'll be done. But as we come down to the last of these parables, they point to the second coming of Jesus. Now, he's not yet closed the chapter, as it were, on his first coming. When he gives this uh, string of parables, he's, he's not, hasn't ascended back to heaven, but yet he is pointing to his second coming. Remember how his disciples, the last glimpse they had of their risen Lord was when he did ascend to heaven, and when he disappeared into the clouds, two angels said to them, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Yes, he went up so that he can come back down. Amen. And when he comes back down, he will have received a kingdom and he will have prepared a place for us. Now we live in a period of time that could be called the already but not yet era. Already but not yet. We are living between those two comings. His coming to Bethlehem and His coming again. And what are we to do? Well, we've already examined from other parables. We are to occupy. We are to invest in His kingdom. Have you ever thought about this? And I'll get to the I haven't forgotten to read the Scripture. Have you ever thought about the privileges we have now that we will not have when we see Christ? During this period of time, we have the privilege of sacrifice. To us has been given the gift of suffering. We can experience the power of prayer. But when we see Christ, all those things are history. They'll be no longer needed but they'll be richly rewarded. Amen. Wow. Y'all are dead this morning. Did all the shouters leave for the holiday? I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. Um, somebody give me a holy grunt and uh, then I'll, I'll get the pump prime for preaching. Thank you. Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household? To give them meat in due season. Jesus is talking, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. In other words, shall be doing his duty. Verily I say unto you, Jesus said on his own authority, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, literally cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable is one of a string of parables that Jesus gives within the broader context of probably what would be his second greatest sermon of his earthly ministry. His first greatest sermon being the Sermon on the Mount. But here we have a great prophetical sermon known as the Olivet Discourse. 
And Jesus gives a string of parables in connection with, with, with that sermon. It is really a dramatic monologue. When you read through the book, uh, or the, the 24th chapter of Matthew, and it goes on into chapter 25, you'll see many references to apocalyptic stuff. I mean, the sun will refuse to shine, the sky will fall, the moon will turn to blood, heavenly bodies will disintegrate, everything in orbit just goes off on tangents, the nation of Israel will have been scattered, the people... uh, uh, that know the Lord suddenly disappearing, and one colossal Christ will just fill the horizon. We are so jaded by others and stimulated by other things, we have no concept of what a great moment that's going to be. It's going to eclipse everything else that's ever happened in history. And every eye shall see Him. And in light of this most momentous event of all history, Jesus wants to call attention to it and tell us basically two things. You see this over and over throughout this chapter. Number one, and it states it in a negative way, do not be deceived. Verse 4 of chapter 24, do not be deceived. Take heed that no man deceive you. He goes on to say in verse 24 that the end time deception would be so strong that if possible, the very elect would be deceived. And beloved, it is happening before our ears and eyes. People we thought better of, big name preachers, leaders of movements are denying the faith. Totally deceived. We need to say, when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me, we need to have the attitude, could I be next? Am I next? Don't be deceived. Don't let it happen to you. The second command that just permeates this whole discourse, all of that discourse, is do be ready. Watch. Chapter 24, 32, verse 42, verse 44. Watch. Be on high alert. Don't let that day catch you unawares. Because it's going to catch a whole lot of people completely off guard. May I just say these two admonitions go together. The believer who, as Paul exhorts Timothy in his second epistle, truly loves Christ's appearing is not going to be deceived, not going to be deceived by false Christs or false religions or anybody arriving on the scene and doing some hocus-pocus alleged miracles. If he's one of the elect, he will not be deceived. It's not possible. He will be ready. He will be ready because he will not grow weary or or disillusioned or get um, just desensitized, as many have, with sermons about the second coming of Christ. Even if Jesus tarries his coming, he's not going to quit being on alert. That's why you've heard me say it a lot lately. I think we need to revive the the Greek greeting of the first century church and use it far more often than we do. Whenever we have our Zoom prayer meetings with the men, we sign off with Maranatha. Maranatha. Our Lord returneth. That needs to be upon our lips and our hearts. Now, our attitude toward Christ's glorious return reveals whether we are truly a faithful and wise servant or we are a, an evil servant. Let me say that again because that's a pretty strong statement. 
Our attitude towards Christ's glorious return and our behavior in light of it reveals whether we will be proven to be a faithful and wise servant or, as we see in this parable, an evil servant. It's a short parable. It's very pithy. It's full of stark contrasts. We have two different servants here. We have two uh, different behaviors manifested by them, meriting two contrasting responses from their Lord and experiencing two polar opposite eternal destinies. Two servants, two behaviors, two responses from their Lord, and two eternal destinies. So I hope your appetite is whetted to get into this parable. Let's take a closer look at these two servants, and I hope as we go through the message today, you'll be asking yourself honestly, with which of the two do I identify? There's the faithful servant, there's the false servant. The faithful servant, first of all, he's the good guy. And he's described in verses 45 through 47, But Jesus said, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Somewhat of a rhetorical question. Whom his Lord hath made him ruler over his household to give them meat or food in due season. He's the one who will be found doing his duty when Christ returns. He won't be hard to spot, as that wonderful monologue of the anonymous Zimbabwe martyr says, My banner will be clear. Faithful. What does that entail? Well, first of all, it entails being submissive. Notice that he is a servant. The Greek word translated servant almost exclusively throughout the New Testament is the word doulos. It literally means slave, bond slave. We are so apologetic about slavery in the West here, especially that the King James translators tried to soften the idea by using the word servant, like this may be some kind of butler or chief of staff. No, the word means abject bond slave, one who has no rights and one who is wholly owned by another. That's what the word means. Now, let me just make sure you understand me. God never intended for one human being to be owned like chattel property by another human being. So you say, well, why then is slavery found in the Bible? That's a good question. Let me give you a quick answer, short version. For the same reason that polygamy and divorce are in the Bible. The things that God did not ordain, He regulates. Real quiet like you've never heard that before. God did not ordain divorce. He permitted it. God did not ordain polygamy. He permitted it and regulated it. God never intended for one man to own another. But I'll tell you what, He did intend for His Son to own us. And that's why Paul tells the Corinthians, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. You don't belong to yourselves. Americans don't like to hear that. We are proud, self-reliant, sturdy, independent. 
But we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Jesus is our Lord and our Master. We are at His beck and call. We do His bidding. His wish is our command. And while He is absent from us during this church age, we are to be busy doing exactly what He commanded us to do in the Great Commission. And the quality that is needed is submission. I didn't say commitment. I said submission. There's a difference. Surrender. What does submitting or surrendering as a servant really entail? Well, three quick things here. Well, I think we need to realize this. First of all, it it entails, very obviously, the very connotation of it, deferring to the master. Deference to the master. Would, Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16? John chapter 13, I'm sorry, first of all. John chapter 13. And uh, look at verse 16. Jesus is doing a role reversal here. He takes off his outer tunic. He uh, girds himself with a towel. He takes a basin of water. And he starts washing his disciples' feet. That is the task of the very lowest slave of the day. And he says in verse 16 to his disciples, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And he commands them to do the same that he has done. Just as Jesus made himself servant, deferred to his disciples, so we should surrender our rights out of deference to him and serve one another for his sake. And I don't, we've heard that story, and, and we talk about servant leadership and, you know, all this good stuff, but in most churches in America, we're caught up with our rights. We have an entitlement complex here in America. We desperately need to get over that, get past that, and expect the same treatment that Jesus received and counted a privilege to suffer for His sake and to serve. The Lord had to work me over about that recently. In my devotions, I'd experienced a few things that just kind of rapid fire things that where my, I felt my good had been evil spoken of and I'd been misunderstood. And I was having my own little pity party and I was telling the Lord all about it. Which, by the way, if you're going to tell somebody, tell the Lord. But wouldn't you know, I was, I was reading consecutively in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and bang, 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 three times in a row. It just started. I knew it couldn't have been a coincidence. The Holy Spirit pointed out the treatment that Jesus received. Matthew chapter 8, he's, he's over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the Gentile part, and, and he casts uh, 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 demons out of two men, and he lets them go into the hogs. There's only one place. If you ever go to the uh, Holy Land, you'll see there's only one place where this could have happened. And these pigs, filled with demons, go down a steep place into the Sea of Galilee, and as Dr. John Rice used to say, they commit hogicide. I mean, they kill themselves. And you would think that the citizens of that country would, would be grateful to Jesus for having cast the demons out of one of their fellow citizens. Oh, no. They're all upset because he put the demons in the hogs and they ruined their livelihood. And they let Jesus get an earful. They begged him to depart out of their coast. The very next chapter, 
Chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus comes to the house of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, to raise his dead daughter, 12 years of age. And Jesus makes a remark before he just takes Peter, James, and John in privately with him. He just says, she's not dead, but sleeps. And the Bible says they laugh him to scorn. And I thought, should I resent it when, when I'm misunderstood and ridiculed? When Jesus was about to do something good, they laughed him to scorn. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus cast demons out of a, a, a deaf man, a mute man, who spoke for the first time in his life. And, and this would have been wonderful to hear this man speak for the first time in his complete life. But instead of thanking God, the Pharisees said, He cast demons out by the power of the prince of the devils. They said that about Jesus, my Lord. I guess I need to give people right to say things like that about me. Three times in the space of two chapters, I had to bow my head and confess, Lord, I get the memo, forgive me for wallowing in self-pity and thinking that I deserve better than my master God. Folks, I don't care how long you've been saved, we've got to keep coming back to that. Otherwise, you'll get disillusioned, you'll think, I don't deserve this. I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. Deference to the master. Submission implies taking our orders from him. Would you turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46? Luke chapter 6, verse 46. I love this verse. I hope you have it marked in your Bible. Jesus said very plainly, in words that the youngest child can understand here, all monosyllables. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? You know, I think that Jesus still scratches his head and says that. How many professing believers are, are not doing what he said? They're taking their cues from the world. They're taking their cues from their peers. They're getting their orders from ungodly and profane people. Some men are getting their orders from their wives. Will you honestly face the question, who is calling the shots in my life? Who am I following? Who am I serving? Who do I dread to disappoint the most? Would I rather disappoint a, a fellow human being, even if they're close to me, than disappoint my Lord? And then being submissive implies, thirdly, that you're prepared to give account to Him. It's clear from this parable before us there in Matthew chapter 24 in the closing verses, as well as in Luke chapter 16, that parable about the shrewd steward that we've already looked at that these two servants did not know when their Lord was going to come back. They had to be ready to give account at any time of their stewardship. Those of you in the secular workplace, you know how uptight you can get if when an audit is coming. You stay up late. You pour over the books. You make sure that any other responsible employees don't go on vacation right before that auditor is going to come to inspect. But what if you didn't know when the auditor was coming? 
and you had to keep the books up to date all the time. Christ is the auditor. At any moment, we may be called to give account. So let's keep short accounts. Let's live transparent lives. We live in glass houses 24-7. Perhaps no more sobering thought could course across your brain in a day's time than this. I must give account of myself and all that I have to God. Every moment and every movement is open to His intense scrutiny. That's the way to live, folks. You say, oh, I wish I could just be a private citizen and get lost somewhere. Sorry. You're his servant 24-7. And you've got to be ready to give account. Submissive. The second adjective is faithful. Here Jesus calls the good servant faithful and wise. It's interesting that, of course, as we looked at already in the parable of the pounds, a little bit later in chapter 25, verses 21 and 23, the commendation for the obedient servant who invested his Lord's money wisely is, well done thou good and faithful servant. But isn't it interesting that the common denominator is faithfulness? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards, that was the chief household servant, that a man be found faithful. True. May I remind you this morning, as a child of God, you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be shrewd. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be liked. But you do have to be faithful. The word in the Greek here is pistos. It is used 66 times in the New Testament. And you check me out, in every single instance, this is kind of unusual for a word used that many times. In every single instance in the English Bible, it is translated the same way, faithful. Faithful. That implies two things. First of all, you're true to the master, true to your master. And secondly, you're selfless in service for the master. True to the master and selfless in service for the master. May I remind you, the master sees us all the time. He sees us 24-7. He knows what we're thinking. Can you imagine what people thought when Jesus read their thoughts in his day? He answered their thoughts, not even their words. But he's the same way. He still sees our, knows our thoughts. He knows our down-sitting and our uprising, understands our thought afar off. He sees all the time. He knows how sad it was just this week. We were shocked and chagrined as the awful news came out that some prominent Baptist pastors who have been very influential, very conservative, very evangelistic, done a lot of good for their Lord, it came out they'd been unfaithful to their Lord and to their spouses. Beloved, let me just say, you don't have to be successful. You don't have to be appreciated. You don't have to be understood. But you do have to be true. You don't have to be notable. But you do have to be faithful. And someday, it's all going to come out. Faithful, submissive, but the adjective found here that is not found in the other parables is wise. Faithful, who then is that faithful and 
wise servant. Just like the two servants in the parable of the talents in chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, this good servant exercised foresight and did his due diligence in investing his Lord assets. Like the shrewd steward in the parable in Luke 16, he was skilled to deal with his fellow servants. But in contrast to the parable in Luke chapter 16 about the shrewd steward, he acted in a worldly and selfish way, but this steward was wise as God counts wisdom. And remember, if we lack that kind of wisdom, what are we to do about it? Ask for it. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, James 1 verse 5. May I remind you of something that we need to emphasize following up even what we did last Sunday? Who is the one that God esteems wise with the wisdom of heaven? The answer is the one who seeks to win souls. Proverbs 11 verse 30, I have a Bible where the former pastor of this church signed his name and put that reference down, Gene Payne. He was a soul winner. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. We talked about that last week, the connection between holiness and the winning of souls, turning many away from iniquity. Listen to Daniel 12, verse 3, a companion verse. This was my father's favorite verse in the Bible outside of John 5, 24. Daniel 12, verse 3, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Okay, who are the wise ones? Here it is. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. That's the ones that are successful in God's sight, wise. Let the worldly celebrities slap each other at the Oscars. Let them make fools out of themselves in sports and in the media. Are you listening this morning? The true stars that will shine when all others have burned out are those that win souls for Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, do you want to be cool or do you want to be wise? That's the true servant, the faithful servant. He's submissive. He's wise, he's faithful. But then there's the false servant that is described in the last three or four verses. You say, Pastor, where'd you get the word false from? The Bible just calls him an evil servant. Verse 48, but then if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Okay, I'll tell you why I call him false. Because his doom is given in verse 51, and that proves that he was false. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking, verse 51, and shall cut him asunder, cut him in two, appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where are the hypocrites going to end up, folks? Say it. Hell. The lake of fire. This is not Baptist purgatory here. This is hell. This is the lake of fire. The evil servant proved to be not just foolish, but faithless. May I remind you, because Baptists don't say this often enough, though we believe without apology that salvation is by grace 
through faith. Let me tell you, where there is faith, there will be evidences of faith. Our belief will affect our behavior. Our Savior linked the two together. And this is especially true if we believe that Jesus is coming back in person to rule and to reign forever. What does the Bible say about that belief? Well, would you turn to 1 John chapter 3, please? 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. I hope you've memorized these verses. In recent months, they become very precious to me. 1 John 3, verse 2, beloved, so he's talking about believers. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know, John likes to use that word know, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Don't stop there, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John didn't say every man who claims to be saved should have, have this purification, should purify himself. He said every man that truly has the hope that Jesus is coming again and he's going to see him, he will purify himself. I didn't say that. The inspired apostle did. The constant expectation of Christ's return is the great purifying hope. And again, I say 318 times in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is referenced. And it's always given an application or, or directed to the believer. Yes. Unbelievers, if you're here this morning without Christ, you're not ready to meet the Lord. The thought that He is coming ought to scare you to death. But the doctrine as it is given in the New Testament is always directed to believers, and it's always for this purpose that we would purify ourselves because our Master is coming again. Like I said, a huge, colossal Christ is going to light up the horizon. It'll be the most spectacular, stupendous thing that has ever happened in the history of man. And the only thing that matters at that time is when you see Him, do do I know Him and is He pleased with me? That's all that matters. When we fail to consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself in light of his soon return, we do what this servant did. We become wearied, careless, discouraged, callous, carnal. One of my favorite songwriters of recent history was the late John W. Peterson, he was famous for a lot of his Christmas cantatas. That's about the only thing churches could sing for a while. Since then, some others have gotten into it. John W. Peterson loved to write his songs about the second coming of Christ. We sing, Jesus is coming again, but he wrote another one, Jesus is coming. It's not as well known, not as easy to sing. But one of the stanzas is like this. They didn't ask me to sing a special this morning, so I'm going to just do it when I want to, Okay. Anybody leaves, I'll understand. Peterson wrote this great song, and he said in one of his stanzas, 
Oh, it is a blessed hope to those who know the Savior. Blessed in the many joys that it will usher in. Purifying hope that has the power to change behavior. Keeping from the world's defilement and sin. And the chorus, Jesus is coming, though we know not when. Yes, He is coming, Jesus is coming again. I love that song. I find myself singing it. You know, when you stop thinking about it, it's, like, it's almost a catch-22 situation. The Bible says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord, and yet it is cultivating the hope of seeing Him that makes us holy. You ever thought about that? Now, what is said about this servant that proves he was a self-deceived evildoer? And he only pretended to serve his master. Three things, and then I'm done. He was careless, first of all. He was careless. Verse 48, he said, My Lord delayeth his coming. He said that in his heart. When we say that in our hearts, that's sure trouble. When we look forward to getting away with something in the interim more than we look forward to our Lord's return, we're going to commit sin. Does does that uh, phrase, my Lord delayeth his coming, does that remind you of any other phrase in the New Testament? I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. It reminds me of what Peter says in his second epistle, chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. He talks about scoffers, skeptics, who in the last days will come on the scene walking after their own lusts, and they'll say this, where is the promise of His coming? We've been hearing people preach about it. We've been reading that in the Bible. Where's the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You remember how Peter answers that? He says the people that say that are forgetful. Yea, he says they're ignorant, willfully ignorant of the fact that one day is with the Lord as what, class? A thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In God's math, it's only been two days since Jesus ascended to heaven. And if it seems like he's delaying his return, it's only because, as Peter goes on to say, he's long-suffering to usward. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As much as you should want him to come, You have to be glad He hasn't come yet if you have some loved ones that are still outside the ark of safety. But don't mistake His long-suffering for tolerance and indifference. Remember what He's done in the past? He waited patiently for centuries during the time of Noah. Noah preached for 120 years. Preacher of righteousness, warning people to get right with God, that God was going to send the flood. And they said, yeah, sure, what's rain? They'd never seen rain. And people have a hard time believing something they haven't seen. But we better believe what God says, even if we haven't seen it. Because after 120 years, God shut the door. God sent the rain and the flood. Carelessness. Callousness is the second thing. Not only did, uh, did he reason that my Lord delays his 
coming, so I'm going to do what I want to, but in verse 49, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. Just take the first part of that verse, shall smite his fellow servants. He was cruel with his fellow servants. Beloved, when we don't love our Lord as we should, you know what's going to happen? We won't love our fellow servants, our brothers and sisters in Christ like we should either. Let me just ask it to all of us. Why do believers crucify each other? Why do they sue each other? I mean, the Bible in Corinthians is plain about that, and yet we see Christians taking professing Christians to court. We're living in a sue-happy generation. Why do they rejoice in each other's calamities and jump to the conclusion, well, they had it coming to them? Why do believers jump to the conclusion that if someone else has a higher standard than they, that they're just judgmental and legalistic? I've never seen anything like it in my life. Maybe they sincerely have that conviction because they don't want to get close to the edge. Have you ever thought about that? Why aren't they willing to be defrauded before they demand their rights? Everybody wants their rights. They're raising their placards. I demand my rights. Let's quit beating up on our fellow servants. If we must rebuke them, and sometimes they need to be rebuked, let's make sure we do it in love and in tears. And let's make sure when they do it to us, we receive it that way. Careless callous, carnal. The rest of verse 49 goes on to say, of this evil servant, he begins to not only beat up, smite his fellow servants, but he eats and drinks with the drunken. We call that carousing. Would professing Christians ever do that? I'm afraid so. In the name of Christian liberty in the last few years, many professors are indulging in drunken parties. A few years ago, a megachurch in our area, and I know the pastor, took a courageous stand against drunkenness. And one of his associates talked to me about it. They made each of their members re-sign a covenant pledge that they would refrain from drunkenness. This member of the pastoral staff said, do you know what happened, Pastor Bradenberg? I said, no. He said, we lost 20% of our membership overnight. Baptist church. In fact, he jokingly said, you'll probably have some of them coming over to friendship. And I said, please spare us. Please spare us. The evil servants are going to be doing that when Jesus comes back. Will you examine your heart this morning? In light of this parable, are you a faithful or a false servant of Jesus Christ? Don't, don't take it from me. Just take the parable at face value. One of the well-known commentators, <clears throat> been around a good while, was William Barclay. William Barclay recounts a, a fable in which three apprentice demons appear before Satan to report for duty before being sent to earth. Three demons come to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So Satan asked the first one, what are you going to tell him when you get to earth? And he said, well, I'm going to tell him that 
I'm going to tell the people there there's no God. And Satan shook his head and said, that'll never work. They know better. He turned to the second one. He said, so what are you going to say? He said, well, I'm going to tell them there's no hell. And Satan said, well, that won't work either. They know better. He turned to the third one. He said, well, what are you going to tell them when you get there? He said, I'm going to tell them that there's no hurry. And Satan clapped his hand and said, splendid. You'll get a lot of converts. I'm here to tell you this morning there is a hurry. Jesus is coming back, and it may be soon. And the night cometh when no man can work. And therefore, knowing the time, it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation, our deliverance, nearer than when we believed. I'm telling you this morning, your attitude towards the return of Jesus Christ reveals your heart. Are you looking and longing for His return? If you are, you're saved. If you're not ready, you'll perish. I didn't say that. Love incarnate said that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that we can't afford to be deceived and unprepared for the return of our Lord. Spirit of God, you're the one Jesus said would teach us things to come, the things Jesus promised. Let the word be on our hearts as well as on our lips as never before. Maranatha. Help us to say it to one another so that we will stir each other up to, to patient waiting and earnest expectation and holy living in light of that return. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.